All right. Good morning again. If you want a Bible to follow along with us, or if you have a Bible, uh, go get ready to open it. But if you'd like a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring one to you um, using the same Bible that we pass out. So uh, if you're following along, you're going to want to turn to page uh, 1067. It's John chapter 7, verse 1 and 9. And that's where we'll be studying this morning. While we're doing that, let's just go to the Lord in prayer one more time, and we always want to ask for his blessing upon every time we study his word and hope to get to know him more intimately and to be blessed by him more and more. Uh, We always want God's blessing of that time, so let's do that now. Lord, in this moment, we're offering you all of ourselves and that we are submitting ourselves to your teachings. Our faith is placed in, in, in your word, your infallible word, which we have, which is uh, what we call the Bible. All these different letters and texts that have been written over, over such a wide span of years, and yet they all talk about the same God. And as Christians, we firmly believe that it is you who ordained all those different authors to write what they wrote in a way that tells us everything we need to know about you and what it is to serve you, what it is to love you, and what it is to be loved by you. Even though this this book may not answer every single question we have about all of life, we know that it is sufficient for our faith. We know it's sufficient when we ask ourselves what it mean, what does it mean to live life as a Christian. We know that this word, these words, is, they are sufficient for us. We don't need to look outside any other text uh, uh, to outside to any outside source. We have everything we need right here, and so we place our faith in that. And uh, just ask for your blessing with this time. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. So, in chapter seven, verse one and nine, as usual, this is just what we're going through in the youth ministry. We just covered. Uh, we just finished. Uh, teaching on the section about this Feast of Booths that we're going to be learning a little bit about this, this morning, uh, which actually, uh, the Jews still observe today, uh, it actually starts on the 13th of October. Uh, we're one week away from this this event that we're going to be reading about in Scripture. Uh, anyway, so this, is a, uh, this whole chapter is about this event, the Feast of the Booths, and this is just the tip of the iceberg as we're only covering the first nine verses, but let's read it together and before you jump into this. says this, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not here yet, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time is not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. We're going to stop right there. 
this is in Jesus' third tour of, Gal- of his Galilean ministry where he went to Galilee, went away to, uh, to Jerusalem, came back to Galilee, did more ministry, went back to Jerusalem, and now came back to Galilee again, and he's about to go back to Jerusalem to the temple to observe the Feast of Booths. And so this is right where we get up to the point just before he leaves Galilee for the third time. The Feast of Booths is an interesting one. Uh, you know, right off the bat in the first verse, we see why he was in Galilee still, because he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Uh, actually, the last time I preached from the Gospel of John, I think was uh, four or five months ago, but we happened to be studying the very passage that goes back to why the Jews have wanted to kill him, which is the healing at the Pool of Bethesda. When Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he made claims like he is able to work on the Sabbath because his father is working, and in that he made himself equal to God. And, and the Jews, ever since that time, wanted to kill Jesus because he was committing the highest form of blasphemy, which is make himself equal with God. And so ever since that time, things have been tense between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And so nothing has changed. Time has gone on. They've already celebrated another feast, uh, at least one or two feasts. And the, the tensions are the same to that he's still avoiding Jerusalem at this time because they still want to kill him. The Feast of Booths is an interesting one. Uh, we have in the book, in the law, in the Old Testament law, three national feasts. And essentially, all three of those feasts, you go back to uh, uh, Levitic, Leviticus and, and uh, Deuteronomy and Exodus, we want to read back on these feasts. But the whole point of the three feasts is essentially this, that they would never forget what God had done for them in the past. And so the Feast of Booths was no different. Uh, the Feast of Booths was really, uh, when they got into the land, the purpose of it was for them to not sit in their comfortable homes with all their things and all their food and everything else. It, it was supposed to be a week of camping for them. And, and so, of course, their regular daily lifestyle was more like camping for us today. So imagine camping for them uh, was much more uh, simplistic. They lived in these booths because it's called the Feast of Booths. This is why, because they made these little shacks out of, uh, they were just temporary shacks and very minimalistic. And the whole point is that they were sitting in them, and the whole point was to look back at the time when God had them wandering in the desert, living in booths, and before he, they were brought into the land. And so they spent a whole week of this, of camping, so that they would never forget where God had brought them out of. It's ironic because at this feast that the Jews are celebrating, this, this feast that was supposed to uh, uh, encourage the Jews to remember that their dependence has always been on God for their salvation, for their deliverance, this whole feast that was, to, that was to point to that, their dependence upon God, at this very feast they once again reject the one that God sent for them to depend on. So we see in this feast that they think that they're obeying the law, but they're actually rejecting God by rejecting Jesus. So in their, in their own minds, they think that they're worshiping God, Yahweh, as of right now, and Jesus is making it clear time and time again that if they reject Jesus, they are in fact rejecting the God that they claim to worship. So this would have been a very difficult conviction to come under to think that you're doing everything you think is worshipful and to hear someone saying that you're doing it all wrong. 
which is why Jesus was so rejected. So that's, that's what the Feast of Booths is uh, in a nutshell. Uh, I encourage you to look it up. Uh, you can go, go to Leviticus chapter 23. It tells uh, that's where it is in the law to talk about it, where God gives them all the commands and what it means to celebrate this feast. Uh, so if you want to read more on it in Scripture, uh, that's one place you can go to. But you could always use Google and look at the history of it and what's involved in all of it. I encourage you to do that because uh, it, it all pointed to Christ. And so it does benefit us as Christians to look back to those feasts today and see how Christ fulfilled those things and how those things pointed to the future Messiah, the things that the, very, that the Jews missed So he moves on in, in verse 3. He says, Therefore the brothers, his brothers now said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may also see your works, which you're doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And in verse 5, we have the exact reason why they are saying this to Jesus. Because for not even his brothers were believing in him. So throughout whole, Jesus' whole ministry, he's being tested by, by Pharisees. He's being tested by his own brothers. He's constantly being tested because no, it, it, uh, I shouldn't say no one, but a lot of people who are following him, they don't even truly believe in him yet. They, they keep asking for more signs, more proof that he is who he is. Even though Jesus has given all of his proof from Scripture, He's given all his witnesses uh, of, the, of uh, John the Baptist and everything in the Old Testament and how he fulfills the law. He's already spoken about this in the uh, first six chapters of John. And yet people are still demanding more signs from him. It doesn't matter what sign he performs. If their hearts are hardened towards him, they're going to continue to be hardened towards, towards him until the Father draws them to him. It's funny with the people being born, what you might call the first Christian household, right? Jesus' own brothers, that they were born in the same household as Christ, and even they weren't born Christians. They didn't grow up always believing in Jesus. It's a reminder to me that as as parents, as Christian parents, the importance of preaching the gospel to our kids and always encouraging them about their profession of faith that they make a profession of faith. And if they don't, to be patient in that and continue to preach the gospel to them. No one is born saved. Not even Jesus' own brothers believed in him right away. But we see that in in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus had ascended and spent 40 days after his resurrection appearing to hundreds of people that time, we know that his brothers did end up believing, at least two of them. We see that they're praying together, waiting for the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And, and James and Jude uh, wrote the two of the earliest letters that we have in the New Testament. And so James and Jude are no doubt probably among the brothers who didn't believe in Jesus right away. But we saw that even God was working in their hearts. That they eventually believed. And they have contributed to the scriptures that we have today. So just as a reminder, no one is born always believing in God. No one is born wanting to submit themselves to to the Lord. Uh, No one is born immediately convicted of their sinfulness, and all of a sudden they want to, they they right out the bat, they want to, right out the gate, they want to live their life for God. No one is born that way. Jesus faced this issue time and time again amongst Jewish leaders who asked him, uh, what must I do to be saved? And his answer in a nutshell was essentially, you need to start all over again. 
All the things that you thought you were doing for the Lord, they have meant nothing if you reject me. That's why we're called born-again Christians, because every Christian is born again. So we see that even in Jesus' own household. All right? His brothers are doubting him. They, they want to test him. They, they want him to continue to prove himself. So verse 6, now he's, so Jesus said to them in response, My time is not here yet, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate me. Uh, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So what Jesus is essentially saying, that he doesn't have to go when they say to go. If his whole purpose, uh, he knows their hearts, he knows the heart of man. Uh, we see that in, in John chapter 2 where he did not entrust himself to man because he knows the heart of man. So he knows very well his brothers have no, have no interest for what's best for Jesus. They have every interest of what's best for them and that they just want to see Jesus prove himself over and over again. And so essentially he, they want Jesus to make a public appearance in Jerusalem and become a spectacle so that everyone could see him. And if he really is who he says he is, then he would present himself publicly in the way that his brothers want him to. And he knows this about what they're trying to do. So now all he's really saying is, I'm not going to go yet. His time is not there yet. He's always on the Father's time. He's always fulfilling the Father's will in everything he does. He never parts ways with the Father uh, and what the will is of the Father. And so he's really telling his brothers, you guys go ahead, because it doesn't matter when you go. Uh, you're going to go there and do the same thing that you should do. But it matters when Jesus goes, because if he goes publicly with his brothers, then he's essentially falling into a trap. And he knows that. So it's not his time yet. He says in verse 8, I'm not going to, uh, my time has not yet fully come. Uh, I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Uh, we're going to see if you just read on in the chapter what he's really saying. My time, I'm not going up to the feast yet. Because we see that he goes down after they do, but he goes in secret. And he hears Everything that was exactly the reason why he didn't go with his brothers. People were talking about him. They were saying, where is Jesus? We were expecting Jesus to come. They were probably talking to his brothers. We thought Jesus was going to come with you guys. What happened? And Jesus knew all this beforehand. So he goes in secret later on, hears everyone talking about him, and then he goes and teaches in the temple. And that is the way that he gets everyone's attention. He gets their attention the way that he wants to, not the way his brothers want to. And he says, the world hates me. And this is what we're going to camp on for the rest of our time here, is what does this really mean? The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. In John 3, 19-21, Jesus already said this. He said, in his conversation with Nicodemus, he said, this is the judgment that the light, he's talking about himself, has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought or worked out in God. So Jesus already made the statement that those who are against him, they actually hate him. 
because of the very thing that he's going to testify of their deeds and that they are evil. He's going to call Pharisees and, and, and Sadducees and, and uh, the high priest and the scribes. He's going to call all of those guys that were supposed to be the, the model for righteousness. He's going to call them hypocrites. He's going to call them dead in their sins or whitewashed tombs. He, he makes statements like, you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And the reason is because they are dead in their sins. And he's saying this to the religious leaders. And they're going to hate him for it. They're going to hate him so much that they're going to put him on the cross because of it. So I think this is where we need to go into what does it really mean for the world to hate Jesus because if they, we already know that if the world rejects Jesus, and Jesus made these statements himself, that they are essentially rejecting the God that the Jews claim to worship. So not only uh, is someone who hates Jesus, uh, they, if they hate Jesus, it really means they hate God himself. I don't think most people would describe their feelings towards God as hatred. Uh, agnostics or atheists or people of other religions or people of Eastern religions or anything like that, uh, non-Christians, they, if you were to ask them, do you hate God? They probably won't say, yeah, I hate God. No, because they probably have, number one, they probably have their own version of God that they worship. So of course they don't hate, no one hates their own version of God uh, because everyone loves their own version of God. I, I, I would, if I made up my own God, I would love my own version of God that did things that only I wanted him to do, or thought things that only I wanted him to think, or said things that only I uh, wanted this God of mine to say. And so if you ask people, do you hate God? People aren't going to say yes. A few will, if they're, if they're really strong in their atheistic values. Uh, they might say, yes, they hate God, because they really just hate religion, maybe, and they, they hate everything that religion, they believe religion stands for, and has caused all this hurt in our world that, that they might believe in. But there is this concept of if you're not with God, then you actually hate God. And this is something that only Christians could actually understand because if someone truly understood what it means to hate God, then they would actually become a Christian. <laughs> Because they would understand God's power. They would understand God's sovereignty. They would understand everything that God is capable of doing. And so the sad thing is that most people will be, will be uh, those who die in their sins, they won't even be aware of their hatred for God. Uh, James 4.4 4 says this. It says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So, uh, uh, this passage isn't necessarily accusing us or you as being adulteresses um, in, in this context. The, the letter of James is written to people who claim to be Christians, but they were seemingly not uh, living out any fruit of it. That in the whole letter of James, we hear things like, faith without works is dead. You guys are ignoring uh, the, the poor people in your meetings. You, you, uh, you're teaching, but you're not doing a very good job of it. You know, there, There's tons of examples in the letter of James that James is writing to, James, the brother of Jesus, where these people claim to be Christians, but they're not doing a very good job of actually showing it. And so he's writing to them, saying, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship of the world is hostility towards God? And you, you are therefore making yourself an enemy of God. We, have, we know this concept that if you consider someone your true enemy, 
it means that you have some form of hatred for that person. For anyone that serves in, in a, on a battlefield, no matter what country you're in, you must be fully convinced that your opponents are your enemies because you have to have enough hatred for them that if you're going to do your job properly as a soldier in war, you have to have enough, have enough hatred for that person that when you look at them in the eye, you're still going to be able to kill them and take their life from them. So it's nothing new for us to understand that if you're an enemy of someone, there is this idea of having hatred towards that person. And the same thing is with God. If you're an enemy of God, you are still you, you are living your life in a hateful way towards God. We're we'll getting into what, what that really means. You know, it's not so much that you're you're always shaking your fist at them, and you're wanting to. Uh, it's not doesn't necessarily mean like those who are burning down churches or 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 murdering Christians around the world, which is still happening today in much of the world. Uh, real persecution of the church. That's not so much the hatred. That that is a form of it. But there are much more subtle forms that still qualify as hatred towards God. And essentially what it means is that we are solely devoted to ourselves and our own agenda than we are to God. This is why Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan. When Peter did not want to accept that Jesus was about to go to the cross, uh, he said, no, no, this can't be, Lord. And then Jesus told his own disciple, get behind me, Satan. Because the very thing of being an enemy of God, all it means is that you are against the will of God. It doesn't mean that you're, you have these, this bitterness towards them that's ongoing, that you hear the, the word God and it just makes you boil on the inside. That's not so much the hatred that most people have for God. The hatred that most people have for God is the simple desire to do what they want to do in life without any regard to what God has to say about it. That is what we're talking about when we say hatred towards God is being solely devoted to ourselves and not the one true God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6 says this. He says, Don't be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness have? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? And Belial is another word for, uh, that they would have substituted for Satan or the deceiver. So you're literally, they're literally comparing Christ and Satan. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? We see this world of opposites, that there is no such thing as being on the fence with God. You're either on the side that, of those who love him, or you're on the side of those who actually hate him, and you're an enemy of God. And this can be very difficult to understand if this is the first time you're hearing this, that, that there is such thing as if you're not with God, you're actually against him, and you're actually qualified as someone who hates God. But the, the, the thing that we as Christians rejoice in is that all of us were haters of God at one point. Even, we see that even Jesus' brothers were haters of Jesus. They didn't always believe. And so every person sitting in here that professes Christ, we were all in the same boat together. We were all guilty of being haters of God at one point in our lives. And yet God saw us in, the, in uh, being dead in our trespasses, that while we were still uh, sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. And so now we are brought out from, uh, we are being enemies of God. And by God's grace, we are brought into being a friend of God. And so if you're sitting in this room, maybe you're, you, you're not a, uh, you won't consider yourself a Christian, or you're not even sure, and you're hearing me calling you a hater of God, 
uh, just I want to encourage you that we are all there at some point. This is not calling anyone out by any means, but as Christians, we look, once again, we look back to where we were. We were to never forget where we were. We were in a place that we were an enemy of God, and yet God still sent Christ to die for us, that we be forgiven of our sins, and now we're made a friend of God. We didn't make ourselves a friend of God. It's by God's grace. So if the world hates God, I think there's a couple implications that we have to look at. A couple realities. If the world hates God, then it also means that the world is going to hate those who belong to God. We see this as true as well in John 15. Uh, before Jesus departs from his disciples, but before he gets arrested and, and put on the cross and crucified and killed and, and raises again, he has kind of this uh, final conversation with his disciples. He says, if, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. You were of the world, Notice that word, the word were. You were of the world. The world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, because of this, the world hates you. In Matthew 5.11, in the Beatitudes, is blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So as Christians, we have to understand that as we are solely devoted to God, it's going to cause difficulties in all of our relationships here on earth. That when we have um, uh, bosses or governments or authorities wanting, to do, wanting us to do things or conform to things that are the opposite of the word of God, of God's will, that our sole devotion to God in those instances are going to, we, is going to cause us to be hated by the world because they see us as not being a part of their team. We're not a part of their cause. We're not a part of their agenda. Uh, when they, they think in their, in their hearts and in their minds, they think what they're doing is best for either the country or for the team or for the, for the company or for the family or whatever their, their agenda is, in their mind... What they're doing is for the best. And so if we think that what we're doing is for the best, and we are solely devoted to God's word, then by logic, it's going to come against everything that they stand for. And it's going to cause a hatred for God that they already have, but then they'll now have a hatred for those who belong to God. Because we're not on their same team. We're not interested in their agenda Uh, This does not mean that we are to treat other people unlovingly, right? We have the command, we do things without love, uh, we're not doing anything at all for the Lord. So this this idea of us being hated as Christians, we are never to reciprocate, we are never to hold bitterness, we are never to uh, attack anyone else or get revenge on anyone else. Uh, We are to, to simply know that if we choose Christ, that there are major implications to that, that it's going to involve us being literally hated because we chose Christ. And that is an implication that many people probably don't consider right, out, right away. It's a division that is inevitably going to happen if they follow the Lord. So if the world hates God, it's going to hate those who belong to God. Uh, another implication is that if the world hates God, then those who belong to God are going to learn to hate the world and everyone else in it. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we go around stomping on flowers and cutting down trees because we hate the world. This doesn't mean that we go and, and we drive recklessly and, and we hold up hateful signs for people to see because we are Christians and we're supposed to hate the world. That's not where this is going. Jesus tells us exactly the definition of what it means to hate the world. He tells us the definition of what it means to hate other people in light of our soul devotion to him. Let's read it in, in Scripture. Uh, in Matthew 6:24, it says, No one can serve two masters. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth or money. Uh, real quick, the context of this, because it's really, it's really easy to read this verse by itself. But if you understand what it comes right after, is Jesus just finished telling everyone, don't be like the Pharisees who do, do their good deeds to be seen. Don't be like these people who pray really loud because, so that they can be heard. Don't be like these people who fast and make it really obvious that they're not feeling well because they're not eating because they just want to be seen by everyone else and get all their glory from fellow man. And he ends that section by saying this, you can't serve two masters. In other words, you can't live your life trying to please and getting your, your approval from other people all the time while at the same time you're trying to be approved by God. You, don't, you, you cannot serve both God and wealth. And why was it wealth at that point? Well, because those are the guys making all the big bucks. They're the, those religious leaders are the ones making the money. So the more religious they seemed, the more people trusted them uh, in, in giving them more money for things. That's the context. If you struggle with being a people pleaser, this idea of being solely devoted to God should bring you a lot of peace in life. Because in the pages of Scripture, like I mentioned earlier, God has given us everything we need to live the Christian life appropriately in the pages of Scripture. And in the pages of Scripture, God has given us everything we need to know about what it means to uh, how we are to behave in every relationship in our life. So that we're never, uh, we should never be caught up in how are we to please all these other people. But it's more like how are we to please God in how we love these people in these different relationships in our lives. Whether it's co-workers or bosses or, or spouses or children or parents or friends or neighbors or enemies. Uh, all those things are listed in scripture. On, this is what it means to be solely devoted to me and to love your neighbor as yourself. We're to never be caught up. We have no excuse to be caught up in trying to please both men and God because God has given us everything we need on what it means to love people in these different relationships in our lives in a way that pleases him first and foremost. Uh, Luke 14.26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not, here's that word, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So once again, this idea of hating our own life, we know uh, in our modern uh, usage of the word, it doesn't mean to mistreat ourselves. It doesn't mean to beat our bodies in a way that's abusive. To hate our children, we know that, that, that that's not the same thing as loving our children. The, the word of God is not contradicting, contradicting itself in this sense. Jesus is simply putting out in the context of if you want to follow me, you're following me first and foremost. That even the word of God is going to separate households. It's going to separate marriages at times. It's going to separate 
parents and children. It's going to separate siblings. It's going to separate uh, cousins. It's going to separate best friends. When one person believes and the other doesn't, you are now hopping the fence, so to speak, to the other side. And you are making a clear division, not just with your profession of faith, but now as God changes you from the inside out and how you live and the jokes that we make and the things that we watch and the things we listen to or how we treat one another, all those things are going to cause more and more separation from those that we once called friends. And we are still to evangelize to them and preach to them and lovingly uh, come alongside them and tell them the gospel, the hope of that there is a possibility of becoming uh, from a hater of God and being made into a friend or a lover of God. That it's possible to, to make that transition through faith in Christ. So that's what it means to hate in this sense. To hate others in light of our devotion to God simply means that when it comes down to it, who are you solely devoted to? Are you living your life constantly trying to make another human being happy and your and your happiness is dictated by whether or not they're happy? That there's a constant burden upon you because you feel like uh, you're never good enough for someone else or, or that you feel like there's expectations that are impossible for you to live up to and you can never just r- relax? And I, I would venture to say it's because you're probably falling into this idea of you're not focused on your soul devotion to Christ. Instead, you're, you're focused on your devotion to either your own happiness or, or other people who you feel like are going to make you happy. But here's what it means to really be solely devoted to God. It, it, you know, it, it, it's a desire to please God first and foremost. So first of all, to be solely devoted to God does not mean that you're never going to mess up. All right, to be solely devoted to God does not mean that you're not going to sin tomorrow, uh, you're not going to sin today or sin later on. No, we're going to continue to sin because God is continuing to shape our lives and shape our hearts in, in uh, conformity to his will and to the image of his son, Jesus. So to be solely devoted to God simply means that it's your heart's desire to please God first and foremost. So we see an example of this in the Old Testament of King David. This is the most popular example which is why I'm using it. King David was a man who is after God's own heart, but yet we see him mess up time and time again, but yet he was a man after God's own heart. And nothing ever changed his whole life, even though when he messed up, he messed up pretty big. It never changed. He was always a man after God's own heart. And the way he showed that was in his brokenness after he messed up. In the Old Testament law, that's why we had animal sacrifices, because God knew that when he gave all 634 laws, that it would be impossible for anyone to keep those laws. That's why within the law, God provided a way to be forgiven when you break the law through animal sacrifice. So it's not like God had this impossible expectation for them. It was impossible in the sense that they, could not, uh, they couldn't live without breaking it, but God made a way for them to make things right, that those who truly loved him, when they messed up, they would be drawn back to, be, to want to be in a right relationship with God. And they did that through obedience, through animal sacrifices. That's why we as Christians today, we don't do animal sacrifices anymore, because we uh, glory in the cross of Christ, which Scripture says in Hebrews that it was one sacrifice for all sins for all time. That's why we don't do animal sacrifice anymore. Because that one sacrifice was enough so that you and I, when we mess up, even though we're solely devoted to God in our hearts, when we mess up again, we don't have to bring another sacrifice 
to the altar. It is already accomplished on the cross. This is why when you're once saved, you are always saved. It is impossible to lose your salvation. It is impossible to unbelieve something. It is impossible to be adopted by God and to be unadopted by God and adopted by God all over again. It is impossible for that to happen. God is faithful to us. So even though we, in our hearts we are solely devoted to God, there are going to be many times in our, in our flesh that we are proven to be unfaithful to God. We do things we shouldn't do. We say things we shouldn't say. We, we think things that we shouldn't think. And in those moments, is because it is our heart's true desire to please God, we are drawn back not to an animal sacrifice to be given. We are drawn back to the cross. And we are reminded the security that we have in that one sacrifice that was given for all sins for all time. That's what it means to be solely devoted to God. It doesn't mean that you're not going to mess up anymore. But it means that when you mess up, your heart's broken over it. Because it's your heart's true desire to live for the Lord. No matter how solely devoted I am to my wife, right? If I made a promise on our wedding day, I promise I will never hurt you. I would have broken that that week. No matter how solely devoted we are to someone, we know this just in our own human relationships, no matter how solely devoted you are to a person, you're going to do something that hurts their feelings. So why should we think that we could somehow be perfect in our relationship to God? Well, once again, we're drawn constantly back to the cross and what it represents and what it accomplished for us. God instructs us how to live. If we're going to be solely devoted to God and, and trust in his word, uh, he gives us plenty of instructions. You know, God instructs me how to love my wife in Ephesians 5. I don't need to ask my wife how I'm supposed to love her. Uh, it helps, but ultimately it should, be, it should be coming from Scripture that God tells me what it means to be a loving husband. I don't need to look to sitcoms or movies or uh, romantic comedies or anything like that to, to try to be a better husband because all those things are going to fall far short. I look to Scripture because God tells me how I'm to love my wife. That's what it means to be solely devoted to God in my marriage, is that God tells me how to love my wife in Ephesians 5. God tells me as a parent how to love my kids in Ephesians 5 in Deuteronomy 6. He tells me exactly what I should do in, as a parent. He tells me how to love my enemies in Matthew 5, that we are to pray for our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He tells me how to love my neighbor as myself. And, and we get that from Luke 10 in the story of the, the Good Samaritan. He tells me how to love my parents in Exodus 20 or 1 Timothy 5. He tells me how I should behave in my relationship with my government in Romans 13 and Mark 12. He tells me how to love the lost. In Matthew 28, where he says, go into all the nations and make disciples. See, when we hop the fence to salvation, we aren't to completely remove ourselves from the world because we are to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. We, we hop the proverbial fence that as we go in and live in this world and we live in Brentwood and in this area, we continue to go back to what are the boundaries that we are supposed to have in our lifestyles so that we don't fall into the same traps that we once did before we were a Christian. I just want you guys to see that God has instructed us. And he gives us very clear instructions on what it means to be solely devoted to him while loving everyone else at the same time. Loving everyone else doesn't mean that we have to be solely devoted to them to make them happy. 
we are loving others in our soul devotion to Christ because God tells us so. God tells us to love our neighbors. God tells us those things. We're not doing it out of the goodness of our hearts. We're doing it out of, like everything else that we do, we do it out of obedience to the, to the Lord because of what he has done for us. That's, uh, that's the first nine verses in John chapter 7. That this idea of what does it mean for the world to hate God? And what does it mean to really, and, and uh, to put it bluntly, what does it mean to hate the world? And what does it mean to hate others? We're going to see that it's actually loving them the way that God commands us to love them. That's really what it means. We're going to uh, observe the Lord's table. And as we, as we transition into this, we're reminded at what was accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ. You know, we, don't have to, uh, we don't observe the three feasts anymore. We don't observe the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of, uh, the feast of Ingathering and the, those three feasts that they had. We don't have to look to stones set by the Jordan River anymore to represent what God had done for the nation of Israel when they brought them across the Jordan River. We don't look back to those things as Christians today. We look back to one thing, and that is the Lord's Supper. Uh, I spoke with Jehovah's Witnesses this week, and anytime I do that, uh, it's about a 45-minute to an hour conversation, and um, it's usually on other people's watch, uh, other people's time because I'm usually with my family, and so I try not to do it uh, when, when I'm with them because uh, then it, it, my kids get bored and everything. So, but there's always a topic of conversation that I, that I hone in on anytime I see Jehovah's Witnesses, and the topic of the conversation this time was asking them about their view of eternal security this idea that can someone lose their salvation. And I asked them pretty bluntly, I said, do you believe someone can lose their salvation and gain it back again and lose it again and gain it back again and so, and so on and so forth? And they said, absolutely. That's what they said. And I already knew that they believed this. I just, it's nice to hear it from the horse's mouth. So we had this 45-minute long conversation and the whole time I was trying to explain to them what was accomplished on the cross. That what's the point of rejoicing in the sacrifice of Christ that he made for us if, our, if when we sin again, it wasn't enough? And the point that they, that they were hung up on was that this idea of repentance and what repentance really is. And they said, I asked them another follow-up question. It was, when should a saved person fear that they lost their salvation? At what point? When they tell a white lie or when they had sex outside of marriage or when they looked at pornography? I gave several examples. At what point should someone be concerned that they lost their salvation? How would they know? And their answer was, the very next time they sin. Do you realize the problem with that? The, the burden that that places upon us being saved by our own works to be saved? That it completely undermines the cross and everything it represents. That the whole point of not bringing animal sacrifice anymore is because it was done for us already. For each and every time that we mess up. I encourage you guys to have conversations with them. Ask questions. Don't go into it thinking that you have to know something. Go into it with questions so that you may know something about them. Just ask questions and let them go. Don't interrupt them. Don't have to argue with them. Don't debate with them. If you feel like you're ill-equipped, then just 
admit that you're ill-equipped and go as an educational experience. If you see Mormons, don't shut your door on their face. Don't turn on your sprinklers. Invite them in. Ask them questions. Because as Christians, we believe that they are lost. We believe that they are rejecting the Jesus, the true, uh, the true identity of Christ in Scripture, and therefore, according to Jesus, if they reject him, they are, in fact, rejecting God, the, the, the God that they think they are worshiping. They're in the same place as the Jewish leaders of this time. They think that they're worshiping God, but everything they're doing and everything they're teaching is, in fact, a form of hate towards God because they're not knowing him rightly. They're not worshiping rightly. So all that to say, you know, how does one belong to God? If you're sitting here and you're wondering, well, how do I know that I'm saved now? You just have to believe in Christ. This might sound overly simplistic, but 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Romans 10, 9 says, that if, you, if you confess through the mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, uh, salvation is never a matter of how much you know. Because there's a lot of scientists who are Christians. There's a lot of scientists who are not Christians. There's a lot of people who don't have a written language, uh, who, can, uh, who have the gospel preached to them and have been saved. And there's a lot of people out there who, um, who we might consider uneducated, who, don't, who are not saved. So it has nothing to do with how smart you are, or how much you know. It has nothing to do with if you could only have these two questions answered about the Bible, then you'll believe. That's not how faith works. Salvation is always a matter of faith. That if you can understand that you, in your heart, you have this, this understanding that you are a sinner, you may know most of the sins that you've, you've done already without knowing much of the Bible. You probably know what you've done wrong. And you have this understanding that there is a God, one true God out there, and you believe in this Jesus, this man that we believe 2,000 years ago, came and proclaimed a lot of wild things about himself, and then he proved it later by raising from the dead. If you could believe that you could be forgiven because of that historical event, then you have enough knowledge, so to speak, to be saved. Everything else is going to come as you grow as a, as a Christian, as you grow in your faith. You don't need to have all your questions answered about uh, the creation days or dinosaurs or the sun standing still or all these other things that are in Scripture. You don't have to – if you are basing your faith based upon whether or not you have those questions answered, then you, you really don't believe at all. Then, Even if you were to have a question answered to your uh, sufficiency and say, okay, now I believe, I would argue that there's a good chance you probably still don't believe. Just because your question was answered about the dinosaurs, is that why you believe? See, as a Christian, as people who are dead in our sins, there's one thing that we have to believe, that we are dead in our sins. And there's only one way out, and that's asking God for help. The same reason why we come to the Lord's Supper is our, our complete dependence is upon God for our salvation. We cannot continue to save ourselves over and over again like Jehovah's Witnesses will have us to believe. That if you do, if you sin, you have to repent and essentially save yourself by repenting of that. If you're truly saved, you will have a heart of repentance. That's what it means to repent and be saved. That when you sin again, your heart is affected by it. And that's what's going to cause your actions to change. Because your heart is for the Lord. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward.
And uh, I'd like for us to stand together for this Lord's Supper service. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 1 and 9. Because if this is a, a, a wave that God has given us, that Jesus himself gave to his disciples to, so that we would never forget what was done for us, I think Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 says this pretty well. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is new working in the sons, uh, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and by, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love and with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. That is what we are to never forget each and every time we come to the Lord's table. This is where we were, and this is where God has brought us. Through the giving of the body and the pouring out of his blood, all on the cross, for all of our sins to be forgiven. We've all, we, we all have big mistakes that we're going to make in the future that we have no idea about. How scary is that? We have no idea the implications of some of the mistakes we're going to make in the future. Tomorrow, next week, next year. And in those moments, in our brokenness, we can rejoice in the cross that it was already paid for. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're just going to do a, a brief moment of self-reflection. Reflect upon where God has brought you out of the darkness and the sin that you know you're dead in and how he has brought you out of that place into a new life in Christ. And let's just spend a moment in silence to reflect upon that and I'll close us in prayer and bless the bread and the cup. Lord, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you for being the bread from heaven. We thank you for being the water, the living water for us. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to you and everything that you were going to accomplish on the cross. And so we look back to this moment now in history when you gave your life on the cross and you defeated death. You proved that you were everything that you claimed to be when you walked this earth. That Jesus, you claimed to be equal with God. You claimed to be the living water. You claimed uh, to be everything that the Old Testament, uh, that the prophets were speaking of hundreds of years before. You fulfilled all those things and you proved everyone, well, you proved yourself that you are true. And so we thank you for this bread and this cup that we have so that we might never forget uh, where you brought us from and everything that you've done for us.
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.